This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 196. Greetings, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, your guide to the fantastical world of Metamore City. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also let you know how I'm doing in my journey as a writing professional. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today, I'm bringing you Chapter 54 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. This is a longer chapter than we've had in a while, so I'm going to skip the recap and go straight to the story. Here is chapter 54. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 54 Will had no idea where he was going. He followed Lizzie like a man lost in a dream, putting one foot numbly in front of the other. There was nothing but the gentle tug of her hand, the intermittent flicker of fluorescent lights, the plain corridors and staircases that all ran together. After a while, he realized that they had left the tower and were standing on a skyway. A bus pulled up in front of them, and Lizzie led him aboard. Will didn't ask where they were going. It didn't matter. His attention drifted again after that. It was easier to go away inside his head, to let the world become a blur. Lizzie was saying something to him, but he couldn't quite understand it, and he couldn't bring himself to care. The next moment he consciously noticed came when Lizzie sat him down in the living room of a cozy, vaguely rustic-looking apartment. The walls were a warm yellow, with elaborate floral patterns painted directly onto the plaster. Dark wooden wainscoting ran along the lower half of the walls, making the room feel smaller than it actually was. Short, empty shelves were mounted at seemingly random intervals around the room, On the highest shelf, a pair of splotchy, black-and-white cats sat watching Will, their faces wide-eyed and wary. Will shifted uncomfortably in his seat, which was how he realized that he was on a futon, accompanied by a small army of stuffed animals. He reached behind him, pulled out a large pink pig, then hugged it tightly against his chest without really knowing why. Lizzie appeared in one of the room's two doorways, holding a cup of some hot, steaming liquid in both hands. She was accompanied by a short, slender Arambian woman, with medium brown skin and a dramatic plume of tightly curled black hair, which was half-constrained by a checkered bandana. She wore a cotton nightshirt that fell to her knees, 
which bore an image of a cartoon kitten and the caption, Cute but Evil. A tiny silver locket hung from a woven black choker around her neck. She came immediately up to Will and knelt in front of him, examining his face with a focused, critical eye. How long ago was he dosed? she asked Lizzie. Lizzie set the cup on a small table beside the futon. About two hours. He exhibited hyperarousal at first, then profound anxiety, and now this. She flicked her tail in Will's direction. The brown woman nodded thoughtfully. Her eyes focused on Will's. Will, my name is Denise. I'm a nurse. I'd like to check your vital signs, if that's all right. Will opened his mouth to speak, stopped, then just nodded once. Denise took his hand gently in hers, then turned it over and placed two fingers against his pulse. Lizzie perched on the far end of the futon, the tip of her tail lashing uncertainly. Denise pulled out her phone with her free hand and started a timer. Pulse is nominal, Denise said, half a minute later. Will, how's your breathing? Are you having any difficulty? Will hadn't been thinking about his breathing until she said it. I... It's a little tight here, he said, pointing at the center of his chest. It was worse earlier. I remember that. Denise nodded again, as if she'd expected this. She felt his forehead for a moment, then turned on the torch app on her phone and shone the light into each of his eyes. The sudden brightness dazzled him, and he sat there blinking the spots out of his vision for several seconds. Lizzie says somebody hurt you, Denise said. Her tone was gentle but direct, and she held his gaze while she spoke. Can I take a look? Lizzie can leave the room, if that would make you feel more comfortable. Will looked over at Lizzie, still watching worriedly from the end of the futon. She feels guilty, he realized suddenly. She thinks it's her fault I got hurt. Will knew better. The only reason he got hurt was because he'd gotten himself mixed up with Callie's world. You should have listened to her. If you'd listened, maybe she wouldn't have left you. That thought brought a fresh stab of grief, and his eyes welled with tears. Denise noticed. Will? she asked, squeezing his hand. Frustrated and embarrassed, Will wiped away his tears with his other hand. It's fine. She can stay. The nurse nodded at this. All right. Let's get your shirt and pants off and see what we're dealing with. Will felt himself blushing, but he obediently removed his clothes. They were soaked with sweat and badly stained from his confinement in the water plant. He felt a fresh wave of embarrassment as he realized he'd been wearing these clothes in front of the district attorney. There was a little blood on his shirt, but not as much as he would have expected, given... His mind flashed back to the horrors he had experienced earlier in the day. His whole body shuddered, and he sank back into the futon, letting out a shaking breath. Eli, help me. Denise began checking him over, probing his arms, legs, and torso. She asked him a few questions, mostly one variant or another of, Does it hurt when I do this? 
She apparently had no need to make him relive his torture in detail, and for that Will was grateful. After a while, Denise sat back on her heels and looked at Lizzie. He doesn't have anything life-threatening, as far as I can tell. I'd recommend getting him checked out tomorrow, but he should be all right until morning. Lizzie looked like a hundred kilos had just been lifted off her. Thank heavens. Morgan's treatment must have worked. Looks like, Denise said. He's having some withdrawal from it, which is another reason to get him looked at. Withdrawal from what? Will asked. Lizzie and Denise exchanged a look, just for a second. It was Lizzie who answered him. You were non-responsive when we found you. Morgan gave you some of her blood. It stabilized you and healed your injuries. Morgan? For a moment, Will didn't know who she was talking about. Then the image of the doctor flashed before his mind. Pale, pale skin, dark hair, and eyes that seemed to hypnotize him whenever he looked at them. Oh, Eli, Will whispered. A feeling of sickening dread gnawed at his stomach. I... I took b blood from... From a vampire, yes, Lizzie said. She leaned forward, put a hand on his shoulder. She saved your life, Will. Will squeezed his eyes shut. His stomach churned. He whispered, half to himself, I will set my face against him who eats blood, and I will cut them off from my people. For the life is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for your transgressions. What? Denise asked, sounding baffled. Lizzie sighed. It's from the Torat Koanim, part of the Canticle of Eli. Some fundamentalists think it's proof that vampires and their servants are damned. She squeezed Will's shoulder once. Will, your pastors are taking that verse badly out of context. It's not talking about vampires at all. Will opened his eyes again and looked at her, suspicious and confused. What was she talking about? Of course it was about vampires. It was right there in the text. Him who eats blood. He studied her face, her body language. She seemed sincere. Maybe she was just misunderstanding the text. Why don't you think it's about vampires? he asked. He tried to sound as neutral as possible. Lizzie had been kind to him, and he didn't want to hurt her feelings. One of Lizzie's cat-like ears flicked backwards. Because this was written in Einador, by people who had lived their whole lives there. Vampires can't go to the Holy Land, Will. There's no magic there to sustain them. There never has been. Will blinked. Never? Never. Not for the last ten million years or so, anyway. I could show you the evidence if you want. The research is rather interesting. Will frowned. But if vampires aren't under Eli's curse, why can't they enter our churches? They can't enter Akala's temples, either, Lizzie pointed out. Or Artela's sacred groves, or even a running stream. The magic inside them is powerful, but it's also fragile. It can be disrupted by many things, and none of them have anything to do with the state of their immortal soul. She leaned forward and looked earnestly into his eyes. 
Morgan Drowling is a good person, Will. You committed no sin by taking blood from her. Your pastors were wrong. Will looked away, uncomfortable. He felt stupid, slow, and inarticulate. He knew his canticle backwards and forwards, but Lizzie was confusing him with all this talk about magic and a world that was millions of years old. He felt unable to marshal a coherent defense of his beliefs. Then again, his beliefs told him that he was under Eli's curse because he had taken Morgan's blood, because she had saved his life. And something about that felt... wrong. It didn't feel like something Eli would do. He sighed. I don't want to argue. He looked at Denise, who was sitting back on her heels and watching the whole exchange like a television drama in a foreign language. Thank you for helping me. Both of you, he added, with a nod toward Lizzie. Denise smiled at him, though her eyes still looked thoughtful and concerned. Just doing my job. Can I get you anything? Are you hungry? Will's stomach twisted with a sudden pang, and he was abruptly reminded that he hadn't eaten since breakfast. Starving, he said. Denise rose and stretched. You stay here and rest. I'll reheat some dinner for you. While the nurse headed for the kitchen, Lizzie reached over to the end table and passed Will the mug. Here, drink this. Will took the mug, sniffed it experimentally. What is it? Herbal tea. My own blend. It will help you relax. Will tried a sip. The flavor was complex, floral and minty and slightly sweet all at once. He liked it. So this is where you live? he asked Lizzie. She nodded once. Denise is part of my chosen family. The others are either asleep or away right now. Chosen family. Will rolled the term around in his head for a minute. It was an interesting turn of phrase, almost an oxymoron, and one that he hadn't heard before. As an aspiring writer, he appreciated things like that. Where's your real family? Lizzie smiled blandly, and the tip of her tail flicked. Right here. But my parents are working overseas, if that's what you mean. Will belatedly realized that his choice of words might have been offensive. Sorry. But yes, that's what I meant. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Regrettably, no. What about you? Two brothers and two sisters. Plus a small army of cousins. Sunday dinners are kind of nuts. Lizzie smiled wistfully. It must be nice to have such a strong sense of where you came from. Will smiled back. Yeah, I guess it is. I hadn't thought about it that way before. Denise came back into the room carrying a dinner plate with a healthy portion of some kind of spicy, aromatic stew. Will didn't recognize it, but it smelled wonderful. He nodded his thanks to Denise as he took the plate then bowed his head and mouthed a silent prayer of thanks before eating. Lizzie let him eat in silence for a time, her tail flicking up and down on the futon beside him. Will shoveled down bites of the stew like it might disappear if he looked away from it. 
It was just as delicious as it smelled, though the spice complex was like nothing he had ever tasted before. He wondered if it was an Arambian recipe of some kind. At last he set the bowl aside, his hunger sated. Denise had not returned, so he turned to Lizzie. That was amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Lizzie fell silent for a moment, and Will reached for the cup of tea again. Then she added, in a low voice, I need to ask you for something. If it's too much, I'll understand. Will paused with the cup halfway to his lips. What is it? I want to go back and help the others. They're facing terrible danger, and... Will put down the cup and put his head in his hands. Tears welled up out of nowhere, and a sob shook his whole body. Oh, Will... Lizzie was beside him in an instant, wrapping her arms around him and pulling him to her chest. Will's sobbing only grew stronger. Please don't leave me, he begged, his voice shaking. Everyone keeps leaving me. Lizzie brushed a hand over his hair like a woman stroking a pet. All right, I won't leave. I was so alone. It was so dark and cold and awful, and then they took me in. His voice dissolved into incoherent sobs and gasps. Shh, Lizzie soothed, continuing to hold him close and pet his hair. It's okay. You're safe now. He didn't know how long he sat there, crying into Lizzie's shoulder. He wept for the horror that had happened to him, for the loss of Callie, and for his own feelings of uselessness in the face of oppressive, overwhelming evil and misery. Not just the Brotherhood, though that of course loomed large in his mind, but the whole world of the street in general. That world, he had learned, was full of good people, and bad people, and a lot of in-between people, who were all tied together in a big, tangled mess of a system. It was a system where people who looked like little girls had sex for money, because there were men from Topside who would pay for that sort of thing. It was a system where gangs were both oppressors and protectors, where being a thief and a spy was one of the few profitable career options and where schools got turned into soup kitchens because education was less important than survival. It was a world the wealthy and powerful had used as a stepping stool to greater heights, and then abandoned, even though it was the foundation on which their whole shining city rested. It was a place of bravery and hope and stubborn determination, where people worked their butts off to take care of each other. And it was a place where someone could just be taken off the street and never seen again. And Will had thought he was going to fix it by writing a book. Eventually, he got control of himself again. He sucked in a long breath. I... I just wanted to help. You did help. You are helping. The evidence you found... The testimonial giving? They could help a lot of people. We could stop this cult from hurting anyone else. I still feel useless, even without the Brotherhood. 
It's such a mess. Kelly was right. I don't belong here. I never did. Lizzie's arms tightened around him. I don't think that's true. You care. You care about this city and the people in it. That's not enough. No, it's not. But it's a start. Caring is what motivates you to act, to learn, to step out of your comfort zone. Nobody makes a difference unless they care first. Will pondered that for a minute in silence. I don't know if I can write the book I wanted to write, he said at last. Whatever I say, whatever I show people about the street, I'm going to screw it up. I'm going to get something wrong or leave something out. Telling it wrong might be worse than not telling it at all. Maybe, but it's not as if you get only one chance to tell a story. There aren't many authors who change the world with their first book. Will chuffed a quiet laugh. <laughs> I guess not. Lizzie ran her hand over his head again, an oddly comforting gesture. There's a writer in Espaku whom I'm particularly fond of. Ife Coyote. Do you know her? Will shook his head. I saw her speak at a conference once, and I had the chance to ask her a question. Well, I had read almost everything she had ever written, and I wanted very badly to impress her. I'd noticed there was one theme that had come up over and over again in her work. Each time it was explored differently. The plots were different, the characters were different, but that core idea was still there. So I pointed this out at the conference, with more detail than was strictly necessary, and then I asked her, Miss Coyote, why did you write six books about the same idea? Do the books fit together in some deeper structure? What were you trying to tell us by returning to this theme six times? Will heard an ironic lilt creep into Lizzie's voice. I was very proud of my question. She smiled at me, and I thought she was going to tell me this great secret to her writing, the key to the hidden puzzle I had uncovered. Do you know what she told me? No, what? Lizzie flicked her tail lightly against Will's leg. She said, Oh, child, I came to that idea too early. Five times I said what I thought I had to say, and five times I learned there was more I did not know. Now I have written it a sixth time, and I have not yet discovered my ignorance. But when I do, I shall write the seventh. Will laughed, and Lizzie laughed with him. Oh, man, that must have been so frustrating. I don't think it was. She seemed to be at peace with the idea that her work would always be imperfect. Which is probably good advice for all sorts of things, not just writing. Will smiled. I guess so. Denise came back into the room then, and smiled down at Will and Lizzie on the futon. You two look cozy. Mind if I join you? Sean is snoring again. I have no objections, Lizzie said wryly. Will? Will looked up at Denise, trying to judge her motives. In a sense, she was still a stranger, and in Will's world it would have been odd for a stranger to offer to cuddle less than an hour after meeting him. But Lizzie had won Will's trust, and Denise was part of her family, 
which gave her a sort of trust by association. Minnie and Will's community would have raised eyebrows at the idea of such casual intimacy, but Will sensed no danger here. Denise and Lizzie were offering welcome, companionship, and comfort, and right now Will had a need for all three. Please do, he said. They cast aside a dozen stuffed animals and adjusted their positions on the futon, Will sliding to the middle of the cushion and Lizzie and Denise leaning in on either side. They fell silent for a time, just sharing each other's presence. There was something deeply comforting about it, being touched without obligation or expectation, without any nervous fussing about what it meant or didn't mean. Will could relax, let go of the grief and the ugliness that had weighed him down, and just be here, now. In time, their eyelids grew heavy, and the limited space of the futon felt cramped. Denise suggested that they lay the mattress down, and with no anxiety or self-consciousness at all, Will agreed. They lay down together on the queen-sized bed. Will found his arm wrapping around Lizzie's waist, his head resting against the soft, warm fur of her head. Denise curled up behind him, her hand resting gently on his hip. The author part of Will's mind, that detached observer that saw everything that happened to him as if it belonged to someone else, looked down at him now and wondered at his behavior. Who was this young man, lying down to sleep between two beautiful women he barely knew? What would his family say about such a thing? But the will on the bed just smiled, closed his eyes, and snuggled in a little closer to Lizzie. There was a lot he didn't know. About the street, about writing, about vampires, and apparently even about his own religion. But here, he knew that he was safe, and he was not alone. For tonight, that was enough. And that's the end of Chapter 54. Come back next time when Kate tries to redirect a ley line while the Brotherhood's ritual reaches its terrible conclusion. Robert Cormier said, The beautiful part of writing is that you don't have to get it right the first time, unlike, say, a brain surgeon. So put on your scrubs and wash your hands thoroughly. It's time for the weekly writing report. I wrote 2,996 words this week, over the course of 3.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 799 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 301 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on my Kevin story, All the World of Fire. I've started introducing more complications into the characters' lives, and into the story. This week there was one particular twist that I didn't know I would be including until the moment I wrote it. I spent the rest of the week exploring the consequences of that one moment of spontaneity, and I can already see how it's going to make some relationships between the characters stronger, while putting added stress on some other relationships. The story is now in Chapter 8, and the manuscript is over 20,000 words. Looking back at the month of July, 
I wrote a total of 21,107 words in 27 days, averaging 782 words per day. That ranks 17th out of the 51 months since I started tracking my writing, and it's my fourth best month since September 2017. I spent 26 hours writing last month. Compared to June, my word count increased by 54%, and my writing time increased by 46%. And now, the feedback. Deb wrote in with a question about Huntress. She says, Just listen to this, and at about 27.08, Kelly's smashed-up bicycle gets a mention. I don't think it's mentioned again. I'd have thought someone as hard up as she is would be hesitant to leave it behind, especially if she's planning to go home to her parents. I'm enjoying the stories so far. Hi, Deb. That's a good question. Now, the real-world answer is that I sort of forgot about the bicycle as soon as we left the scene, because my focus was on the relationship between Morgan and Kelly, and everything else was a convenient excuse to put them together. I wrote this story almost 20 years ago, and back then I wasn't doing as good a job of keeping track of story details as I am now. The in-universe explanation is that the story is from Morgan's perspective, and she doesn't focus on the bike because it's not important to her. She has a young woman in front of her who's injured and in need of help, and they're in a dangerous part of the city after dark. Morgan's priority is to get Kelly to safety, and she's not going to leave her alone in her skimmer while she goes back down to get a bicycle that is probably ruined anyway. They could always go back for it later, when it's safer to do so. Someone might have taken it, but in the worst case, Morgan can help Kelly buy a replacement. She might not be wealthy anymore, but she still has resources. And once they've shared blood, Kelly is important enough to her to be worth the investment. Thanks for writing in. Hey Chris, it's Sarah Tuscarossa. I hope this finds you well. A little bit of commentary on the Lost in the Leafs. I'm finally getting uh, more caught up again. Just a couple of things, because I haven't commented in a lot of chapters. First off, thank you for talking both in the behind the episode and on one of the regular episodes about the whole loss of humanity and Mercury's personal bias there. I'm glad to hear that some of his beliefs about losing one's humanity are based on himself rather than like an immutable fact. And... I'm glad that both John and Morgan already have so many deep human connections that they'll probably be a lot better at handling it than he was. Um, That was good to hear. I mean, I kind of felt like, you know, that was the case, but it was good to hear. The other thing is, I want to commend you on how you did the Callie sending Will away and also breaking up with him. Because a hero breaking up with their partner because whatever it is that the hero does is too dangerous for the partner, in the hero's opinion. It's one of those tropes that aggravates me a lot most of the time when it's done. I remember the first time that it really picked me off was in the 2001 or whatever year, like the early 2000s Spider-Man. Spoiler alert for decades ago. Uh, But, like, that kind of thing is, like, so, you know, I found that so frustrating, and it's just, I feel like as a trope, it's done a lot when it doesn't make sense to be or when it's like clear the hero's just being like self-sacrificing but they really don't need to because their partner could handle it. Here, however, it makes fucking sense. Thank you for writing it well. 
because, yeah, Callie's absolutely right. Will cannot handle this. And, I mean, I feel bad for him because he didn't know what he was getting into. She, but I also feel bad for her because she tried to tell him. She tried to make it clear that this is out of his, his wavelength. And I really appreciate how you, you wrote it. And, I mean, Callie's not perfect, so she's not going to be the most gentle and let down easy kind of thing. But honestly, they don't have fucking time for that right now. So I think that how you wrote it makes a lot of sense and is really great. And does that trope justice instead of being a tired, annoying thing that tends to frustrate me to no end at least. And I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who gets annoyed by that trope. So good job on that. And also the thing is, you know, they only found each other through happenstance. I mean, yeah, Kelly's luck might have played into that, but I mean, it's not like they found them each other through some big long list of compatibilities or anything. And I mean, yeah, she loves him and stuff, but there's a great article, I think it's by Mark Manson called Love is Not Enough. I think that applies here. That is a really great article that is so good. Anyway, but yeah, love her loving him is not enough and him loving her is not enough. And I mean, their love and this situation are also separate. Like, even if she didn't love him, I would hope that she would get him out of danger because he can't handle what they're doing right now. So, anyway, I really like how you handled that, and I'm looking forward to continuing catching up. All right, I guess that's it for now. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. And welcome back to the voicemail line. It's good to hear from you again. It's funny, but until you mentioned it, I never made the connection between Callie and Will's breakup and that old hero trope about breaking up with their romantic partner because their life is just too dangerous. I think partly that's because I don't see Callie as a hero, exactly. I see her as a survivor, someone who's been through hell and is just trying to hold her little piece of the world together, by whatever means necessary. Also, Callie isn't really breaking up with Will because her life is too dangerous. After all, she got him into danger the very first time they met, and that didn't stop her from having a relationship with him. She could have sent him with Lizzie for now, and planned to meet up with him again later. Will certainly felt like he had learned his lesson, and wouldn't try to insert himself into her business again. What's really going on here is that Callie has realized that their lives are just fundamentally incompatible. They don't have the same values or the same goals. They don't share a common cultural context. Callie is never going to be docile enough, domesticated enough, for Will to take home to the world he grew up in. By the same token, Will is too fragile and ignorant to be part of Callie's culture, and Callie doesn't have the time, the patience, or the emotional bandwidth to teach him everything. Nor should she be expected to. Their love for each other is genuine, but like you said, love alone isn't enough. I've said before that Will is based on a younger version of me. Two of my early breakups happened for reasons similar to this one. In both cases, my girlfriend realized that our lives didn't fit together, that neither of us could be what the other needed them to be. Fortunately, they made the hard decision to end it, because I didn't have the perspective or the introspection necessary to make that call. I'm grateful to both of them for being smarter about relationships than I was, and I'm lucky to count both of them as good friends to this day. Experiencing those breakups also put me in the headspace to take a hard look at my life and my prior assumptions, just like Will did in this chapter. 
It started me on the road toward becoming more introspective, toward casting off old beliefs and trying on new ones, and just generally maturing as a person. Here's hoping that Will is beginning a similar journey of his own. Thanks for the call. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.